Prime Minister and the Minister for Children have just announced the government will hold or set up a Royal Commission of Inquiry into Historical Abuse in State Care. The Royal Commission will cover circumstances in which the state directly ran institutions such as child welfare institutions, borstals or psychiatric hospitals and where the government contracted services out to other institutions. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail, I think as a country we have got this naive belief that no, it couldn't happen here. Well it did. From mid-September until early October, victims who were physically and sexually abused while in state care delivered harrowing accounts to the Royal Commission of Inquiry. And since Monday, it's been the state's turn to call witnesses. But a recent deep-dive piece in Newsroom by the journalist who's been following proceedings for nearly half a decade paints a bleak picture of state institutions obfuscating the truth, withholding documents and using every weapon in the legal arsenal to limit its liability. The reason he was running away from Holdsworth so often was because of the presence of a guy, John Drake, who had repeatedly sexually abused him in Campbell Park from the age of about eight. That's journalist Aaron Smale. He's been reporting on abuse in state care for about five years, and he's talking here about a man called Tyrone Marks. Tyrone was abused in state care as a boy at an institution called Holdsworth Residential School at Whanganui. Aaron says Tyrone had tried to escape from the facility 47 times during his time there, and the 48th time, disaster struck. He was, you know, terrified of this guy and started running away regularly, and there was actually a bunch of him, it wasn't just him, there was a bunch of them um, took off and had pinched some bikes and were riding down this road. They didn't even know where they were going. They just wanted to leave. And he got hit by a car and dragged some distance under that car along the road, and he basically had the bike embedded in him. You know, he had multiple serious broken bones, lost a lot of skin and tissue. He was in hospital for a good six months, got out of there, went back to... Holdsworth, and then was taken by the the caretaker of all people in a van and dropped off at Lake Alice. Lake Alice was a psychiatric facility in Rangitike and a hotbed for abuse during the 1970s. That was, if you thought it couldn't get any worse, well it did. I mean, he got electrocuted there using ECT um, without any anaesthetic. He was sexually abused by one of the uh, adult inmates on the first night. Um, and that's actually how he ended up getting his first zap of ECT. He smacked this guy in the head with a with a chair. When I first met Tyrone, and there's a couple of others I've come across like this, I I struggled to comprehend how these individuals were still standing. You know, they the just the the levels of suffering and just awful stuff they went through it just I can't quite get I still can't get my head around it and you know it, it just speaks to the strength of the human spirit or something and I, mean, I know that sounds cliche but the fact that they can still sort of function at, at all is is remarkable being smacked open-handed around the head and pushed hard in the chest in the classroom being punched in the stomach on one occasion at a swimming pool, the teacher hitting me 
when I was using sign language to communicate with other students. I also witnessed him hit other students who use sign language on several occasions, having to watch the teacher assault other students. With a topic this big and sweeping, it can be easy to get bogged down in details. So before we do that, let's do the big picture stuff. The Royal Commission into Abuse in State Care is essentially looking at how people were treated in state care institutions like welfare homes and psychiatric facilities and faith-based institutions like churches. It's looking at a 49-year period between 1950 and 1999. And this is all happening because over the past few decades, many claims have been brought forward by people who say they were mentally, physically and sexually abused while in the care of the state. And to be clear, this abuse did take place. Everybody accepts that. It's more a question of exactly how rife it was, who's responsible, how these allegations were dealt with, and how we can stop such failings in the future. The Royal Commission was announced in February 2018 and has been gathering evidence and testimony for a couple of years. The Commission will produce two reports based on what it hears, the first due at the end of this year and the second sometime in 2023. And these reports will lay out the findings and contain recommendations about things the government can do to stop these sorts of things happening in the future. However, they are only recommendations and the government isn't obliged to adopt anything. Meanwhile, Aaron Smale has kicked his work up a notch. I'm actually, I don't know if I mentioned I'm doing a PhD in this. It just became too big for a media kind of treatment. And the whole backdrop to it is, you know, understanding particularly why there were so many Māori children in those institutions. Um, there's a whole lot of factors that went into that. And so, yeah, it is trying to understand and, and grapple with the, the complexity of it. But then you start to see certain things and certain themes start to emerge quite clearly. And one of those themes was that this denial of liability. It was basically, it's basically a technical term, a legal technical term where you know, Crown lawyers say, well, we're not taking responsibility, if you want to paraphrase. And so that becomes problematic because there's clearly evidence that you know, what is being alleged um, has happened and probably on a scale that we've yet to really understand. And yet the Crown has simply taken a position that even where they admit to uh, certain allegations, there's still this little fishhook in there where they deny liability. And so they want to always minimise their uh, exposure, if you like, both on a legal front and on a particularly... Uh, on the financial front. Do you get the sense that because some of these allegations are so old, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old, there is an attitude within some of these state institutions of it happened under a different watch, none of our people were there, why should we be taking responsibility and besmirching our name now when these were 40 years ago? <clears throat> yeah, well, that's there is an element of truth to that. But, you know, the, the state, the Crown has this... Um, ongoing existence and, you know, responsibility. It doesn't matter how long ago it's for. I mean, if you look at the treaty claims, for example, people often want to say, well, that's all in the past. The trouble is you can't separate out what's happened to the victims. It didn't stop for them at the moment that the abuse stopped because that's, it's left them with this 
psychological scar and wound that is ongoing. And if you look at, I mean, Tyrone says that it's, it's, it's always there. It never goes away. I think, you know, the survivors, they survive, but they still live with the implications and the trauma of that. And even if they go to some lengths to try and get help or rehabilitation or counselling, they're still dealing with it. They never really, um, it never goes away. And it's not just the impact on them, it's the impact on their kids, their grandkids. I mean, I'm talking to a lady at the moment. To talk to her, she's very um, articulate, well-educated, very successful, and I, I couldn't understand. I had sort of told her a little bit about what I was doing, and she kept pestering me with these questions. And it turns out her father went through the welfare homes. And it's been really interesting getting to know her and understanding it from that end of it and, and the impact it's had on her, um, his inability you know, to be the father that he could have been, and the implications for her growing up. And it's not been until quite recently that she has begun to understand why her father has uh, been the way he is and understand the trauma and some of the things that he's been through. They're pretty much all the same, except the more north you go, the more volunteers and the more staff sort of look the other way. They're pretty much all the same. None was really better than the other, other than the food. I guess it made me a bit, bit institutionalised that place in my thoughts and my behaviours, the way I reacted to people was was never really the same again after after that. And I don't think I was I was out of residence long before I went into jail. During the period covered by the Royal Commission, more than one hundred thousand children went through state care. The topic of my research is Maori children in state custody. Now I'm not by any stretch trying to diminish what you know non Maori or Pakia kids or individuals went through, but that's been my focus because the numbers, they're a bit patchy, the stats, but there's a pretty clear picture there that a good 70 to 80% of the children that went through that, those institutions were Māori. Mm. Um, and we're talking, you know, over 100,000, so say 70, 80,000. Now, just stepping back from the institutions, I mean, for Māori at least, there was a quite a massive surge in the population between the sort of in the 30s and 40s and right through into the 60s. And that surge in the population coincided with Māori moving to the cities. So you had particularly, there's a, a cohort bet- born between, say, uh, 1950 and 1966. Those Māori boys in particular were picked up in huge numbers. That was as a result of you had... Māori were sort of ended up living in areas where that socioeconomically a lot of whānau were struggling. You had larger families, parents on lower incomes, uh, housing was an issue, there was racism from Pākehā neighbours. And so those communities were being what you could call over-policed, mm. not just by the cops but by the welfare. And so you had this sharp uptake of Māori children being funnelled into these systems and some of that, there were reasons for intervention. There were, you know, there was abuse or neglect going on, or you know, that's pretty clear. But there's also a large number of people that were. I mean, there's a, a guy, an, an old gang member I got talking to. He wagged school for one day, mm. and ended up spending four years in institutions as a sort of twelve, thirteen year old, um, and then went on to lead, you know, a major chapter of a major gang. The first story I did on this was a guy, Jimmy, and again, he was wag school, and the cops took him back to his 
uh, home and his parents were working, so they took him off to the welfare homes. So there's some quite trivial reasons that a lot of these kids ended up in these institutions. And the numbers, I think, were just such that... And you have to remember that the climate of the day was, you know, there was this big paranoia. Uh, the Mazengarb report created this real sort of cultural sort of paranoia about delinquency, and you didn't have to do much to get that label slapped on you. And so that's... You know, the welfare system was very vigilant, very punitive, and these kids were then being funneled into these sort of bricks-and-mortar uh, welfare institutions, and there was a network of them around the country. Mm. And in the end, I mean, I think the, the numbers and the pressure on them uh, meant that they were just very, very poorly run, and you had, and it's the perfect climate for um, abuse to sort of take hold and for perpetrators, particularly paedophiles, to sort of infiltrate and to, to abuse children that are under their care. I recall my mother also being deeply anxious I was in hospital and wanted to know why I needed to be there. But you didn't question the doctor's authority during those times. They were like gods. They would give me a muscle relaxant to paralyse me. It felt like razor blades going through my body. You were fully awake during this time. You could see the silver machine and the assistants holding the electrodes. They would place the electrodes around my head before I became unconscious. Every time after shock therapy, I felt faint, dizzy and vomited. Aaron's been telling the stories of victims for a long time, but his more recent pieces have focused more on the hurdles which have cropped up during the course of his investigation. And he says many of those barriers have actually been put up by state agencies. It's all about trying to minimise the Crown's liability. And so that creates a, a kind of almost a culture that sort of pollutes the whole process where it's not about fronting up and acknowledging this stuff. It's about trying to get yourself off the hook. Anybody who's got children, you know, you, you try and you know your child's done something wrong. The issue is not what they've done wrong, it's them actually fronting up to it. And believe it or not, that seems to be still an issue at the institutional level. I mean, I've had all sorts of just endlessly frustrating um, responses from various institutions. Uh, what should be a straightforward answer becomes this dragged-out process. Um, I asked early on, um, I had heard from two reliable sources that the Crown had used private investigators to basically snoop on not only the claimants, but witnesses for the claimant. And I got an answer that said, no, no, we never did that. You know, And this was, and I said, are you sure? And I clarified and said, is that for both MSD and Crown Law? And got this answer and said, no, we haven't, we didn't do that. Well, it turns out they did do that. They'd spent $90,000 doing that. And I still haven't got a really satisfactory answer as to why I got that misleading answer in the first place. It gets to a point where you almost give up. It's almost not even worth pursuing because there are so many things to uh, investigate. There is this pattern of behaviour where, I mean, I requested documents uh, around Lake Alice. Uh, now, that was done under the Official Information Act. That's supposed to take 20 working days. Mm. I got, by the time it had gone through the Ombudsman's process, it was over three years and even when the ombudsman came down in my favour, I got a phone call from one of his staff saying, have you got those documents yet? And I said, what documents? 
and it had been three months since the ombudsman had informed them of his uh, recommendation, and they still hadn't handed them over. If it happens once, you can think, yeah, well, maybe that's just an oversight and you give them the benefit of the doubt, but it happens repeatedly, and it's becoming almost farcical. Has the Crown known for a long time that this stuff was going on, or did they find out because of your work? Oh, they knew well before I came along. Mm. Um, And this is it. I mean, I'm sort of Johnny-come-lately. I mean, you know, you look at the survivors. I mean, there was a a lady by the name of Leonie McEnroe. And Dr Leakes gave me shock treatment himself, and I remained conscious until I was unconscious. There was no anaesthetic. There was no muscle relaxant, and I recall that vividly. The naughty behaviour that we were punished with drugs, seclusion and other forms of punishment were things like talking or moving or giggling while the staff were watching Days of Our Lives. She filed a claim back in the early 90s and they dragged that out for like nine years. Survivors have been fighting this their whole lives. You know, just because I may have exposed some of it in the last couple of years, it doesn't mean to say it suddenly, you know, occurred just because I turn up. Mm. Even their lawyer, Sonia Cooper, they request, you know, requesting their own file, you think that would be straightforward. But there's often huge redactions, stuff that's um, taken out, and then it pops up somewhere else, and the rationale for redacting it is um, shown to be dubious at best. Their whole motivation seems to be to keep the bill uh, you know, down, to keep a cap on the sort of cost. And yet I've been told that you know, Crown Law pretty much got unlimited resources to fight it. And you know, QCs don't come cheap. And there's also a bit of a false economy in there because they're only looking at the, sort of, uh, the cost in a very narrow way. And if you just want to talk about the dollars and cents, you know, there's a huge cost... Um, ongoing costs of the trauma that these individuals have been through. I mean, there's one guy that I've got to know. He's he spent 35 years in and out of jail. Well, there's probably four million bucks there. Hmm. I just think it's a false economy, as you say. I mean, the word holistic is probably you know a better way of looking at it. But I mean, we wouldn't have, for example, I mean, the Royal Commission, which is a valuable development, and that's costing us 80 million hmm. now. <laughs> We wouldn't have we wouldn't have the need for a royal commission if this had been dealt with satisfactorily. Isn't it better that there's a royal commission now, in a sense? Well, yeah, it is. But I mean, at what point should that have actually happened? You know, it's been we're well into, as I say, twenty, thirty years into this process. You know, there's always going to be. You're not dealing with simple issues. You're dealing with human beings who've been through trauma. So it's inherently complicated. And there's always going to be somebody who is unhappy with whatever process you put in place because it can never account for everything. But I think, you know, if they had affronted up and dealt with them in a more honest way, then it would have just taken the heat out of it, you know, and the frustration and the anger. I mean, there's this process that I talk about where the individual perpetrator will silence the victim. And that has some pretty serious damaging consequences. But then you've got the institution pretty much doing the same, Mm. trying to silence them using all sorts of legal kind of tricks of the trade. 
And that silencing is always damaging. And I think when survivors finally get the courage to come forward, it's incredibly hurtful um, for them to be told, well, you know, we don't really believe you. You repeatedly in your pieces reference Crown Law's use of legal technicalities, what you what you term there as sort of legal tricks of the trade. Can you give like an example or a couple of examples of how that actually worked? Like I think there was a, a good one was about the statute of limitations around claims being brought. Yeah. It's quite a technical bit of legislation and I'm probably oversimplifying to the point I'll get something wrong. But my understanding is that the statute of limitations requires um, the victim to lay a claim, uh, I think it's six years after they turn 20. Um, now, there's pretty good evidence, and the Royal Commission in Australia has found the same, that it takes a long time, particularly for sexual abuse, for people to talk about it. And, I mean, I've had this experience myself where I've done stories about individuals and I find out later that their family didn't know some of the stuff that they divulged in the story. And um, I had the experience, I heard that the Royal, uh, sorry, Human Rights Commission uh, got a phone call after, I think it was the first story I did, they got a phone call from a lady and her husband broke down and disclosed this abuse that had happened to him like decades before. And that's their nearest and dearest, they're not telling. And so to expect people to come forward and within six years of, you know, technically being adults is just completely unrealistic. And I don't know that that legislation's even designed um, for that purpose, and yet they use that for that purpose. I think there's a, a slight naivety in New Zealand that we like to believe and we have this naive notion that, and we, we tell ourselves this and other people overseas tell us this, that, you know, we don't have corruption. We don't, you know, compared to other countries, we're not, we're good and we are lead the world in human rights and all this kind of thing. And I don't think there's a adequate comprehension on in the part of the public as to the seriousness of this, the scale of it. We've let these people down as a country and we need to do something. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I haven't got the template for that because there isn't one. But um, we have to listen to them. We have to listen to these stories, but we have to listen to what it is that they want done to change it. We got in touch with Crown Law to see whether it had any response to Aaron's work. It says a full explanation will be given under examination over the next week from the Crown, including the Crown Law Office, and live streams of this evidence are available on the Abuse and Care website. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Aaron Smale. Matewa. Mm-hmm.